remember back in the 90s, there was a trend of this thing called stereogram posters or 3D posters. And these things were crazy because the poster itself was basically the same image over and over in different colors. But if you stared at it long enough and in just the right way, an additional image would magically appear right before your eyes. Does anyone else remember these posters? Okay, I was unfortunately one of those people who no matter how hard I tried, I could never see that hidden image. I just, I couldn't see it the right way. I was, I, like some people say, relax your eyes or stare off into the distance. I couldn't get it and it was incredibly frustrating. Now those posters taught me something and it was this, you can stare at something for hours, even days, and it never seems to come quite into focus for you. Now, as a church, we are currently in a series where we are focusing on each portion of the liturgy throughout our service, and we're considering the purpose of each movement and how that specific portion of the liturgy, in turn, shapes us as we engage in it each week. This morning, we're going to go backwards just a little bit. And we're going to spend our time talking about the prayers of the people, the confession, and the assurance of pardon. Now, within the flow of the service, these elements come right after the sermon and the creed. And I'll admit that as I started thinking about these parts of the liturgy, initially, they were a little bit like those posters, I was looking at them, trying to see that deeper image, the connection between each movement, and I was having a difficult time identifying the underlying picture. But thanks to the help of Pastor Tim, he's actually a pretty smart guy, I was finally able to see that common thread that connects each one of these liturgical elements to the other. And the unifying theme of the prayers of the people, the confession, and the assurance of pardon is relationship. But most pointedly, these three aspects of the liturgy declare to us the unwavering truth about our relationship with God. Let's start with prayers of the people. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the early church is in its initial stages, and this is what the Bible tells us about those early believers. And they, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, we see from this verse that from the very beginning, the church has focused on prayer. And I recognize that for some of us, the topic of prayer can stir up all kinds of emotions in us. Many of us here have suffered and um, been, you know, endured the disappointment and the confusion of what we would consider unanswered prayers. There are those that struggle with prayer in honestly knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, or where to say it. Prayer is a topic that, while simple, it isn't always easy. But this morning, I don't want to zero in on the trees 
and miss the forest that is right in front of us. Because in any form it takes, the active prayer implies one crucial reality, and that's this. We believe God hears us when we pray to him. And the reason that he hears us is because we have a relationship with him. Oftentimes, the reality of our relationship with God is just something that we take for granted. We get lost in and amongst the trees, forgetting altogether that we are fortunate enough to be dwelling in the forest in the first place. Let's do a little thought experiment to illustrate this point. I would like for each of you here to imagine for a moment a powerful, successful, important individual. Now, depending on who you are, this could be an actor, it could be a sports legend, could be uh, the leader of a powerful nation or a large global organization. Now, if you wanted to talk to this individual, what would you do? Where would you even begin to try to connect with this person? Now, I'm assuming that no one here has those kinds of contacts in their phone where all you have to do is just push a button and be connected to some of the world's most influential and powerful people. But you and I have something far better. We have the opportunity and the means to come into the presence of the Lord God Almighty and to speak with him in ways that are intimate and real. And we can do this only because we have a relationship with him. This piece of the liturgy, the prayers of the people, is just that. It's the practice of prayer. And when we pray, we affirm each time we gather in this place that we are a people that have access to our Father. And when we cry out, he hears us. But not only does he hear us, but in prayer, God also speaks to us. James, thir- or no, not James, Jeremiah 33.3 says this, Thus says the Lord, call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great things that you have not known. We are given an opportunity each week in the liturgy to not only speak to God, but to also listen for him to answer us. In healthy relationships, communication goes both ways. There's one other thing regarding the prayers of the people that I think is worth highlighting. The prayers intentionally turn our focus outward to those outside these walls that need to be remembered and brought before the throne of grace. We pray for things like nations, government leaders, powerful leaders, the welfare of the capital C church, creation, the sick, the needy, the hurting, All these and more are the focus during the prayers of the people. And it reminds us that there is so much more in this world than the people here at Trinity. The prayers of the people allow us to pray as one unified body, to pray for the world that is in 
desperate need of God's mercy and to turn our gaze away from our own struggles and focus our attention, if only for a moment, on the bigger picture. We engage in this time of prayer in the midst of our service because we have a relationship with our Father, one in which we speak, He hears, and He answers in return. Now, the second portion of the liturgy that I want to look at this morning is the confession. What we are able to do during this time is to declare without equivocation that while we are in relationship with God, we have not earned nor do we deserve on our own merit the position that we enjoy with him. We are brought to our knees both figuratively and literally, if we're able, to admit to ourselves, to God, and to, uh, to the other people in this room that we are unworthy, that we are sinful, and that we have fallen short. As James 2.10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Church, you and I... We're lawbreakers, and we do not deserve the relationship that God has offered us. Where else in the midst of your week are you, are, are you encouraged to acknowledge and confess such a reality? Because left to our own devices, we ignore the need for confession. We, can, we conveniently forgo this practice because... It's hard, it's uncomfortable, and I'm guessing for many of us, we don't want to be reminded that when it comes to our relationship with God, we bring absolutely nothing to the table. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Not injured, not disabled, not debilitated dead. And we need to be reminded of this reality frequently. And the confession is an invitation for each one of us to acknowledge our sin and to repent from our wrongdoings. But it's also more than that. Just like those 3D posters that I was talking about earlier, there's a second image within the confession, one that is much more significant that's kind of hiding in there. But we just have to have the eyes to see it. The confession doesn't have to be only about us and our sins. If we look beyond ourselves and our own shortcomings, by contrast, what we see is the immeasurable holiness of our God. We recognize as best we can the majesty, the beauty, and the glory of a being whose name is holy itself. And when we turn our eyes away from our pitiful state and we turn our focus to God, my prayer is that our hearts can sing the song of Moses when he says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in goodness, doing wonders? In the confession, our hearts are invited not only to repent, but to worship. We can marvel in God's holiness rather than just despair in our own sinfulness. Now, after the confession, it makes sense that the next portion of the liturgy is the assurance of pardon. If we play no part in the relationship that we get to enjoy with God and we have humbly admitted as such in the confession, then we must be reminded that it's because of who God is that we are assured pardon and restoration with him. How miserable would we be without this part of the liturgy? Church, our wretchedness is not the end of the story. We cling to the promise of what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In this part of the liturgy, in the, in the assurance of pardon, we are told by the priest or the bishop that because of God's great mercy, we are promised forgiveness of sins when we repent and turn to our Heavenly Father. This movement through the confession and the assurance of pardon, all we are doing is we are, are affirming the truth of what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1.9 when he writes, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are reminded that our relationship is established not by our own efforts or merit, but because God, in his infinite grace and mercy to each of us, has made a way for it to be so. So as we have said throughout this series, there is a shape to the liturgy that ultimately, if we allow ourselves to submit to its purpose, it will shape and fashion us into the people that we are intended to be. And through the confession and the pardon, what happens is that as we continually allow the truth of our sinfulness to be acknowledged we begin to see and comprehend the unfathomable, unfathomable depth of our sinfulness and brokenness. And as we understand more fully and more deeply just how wretched we are, the more we can sit in awe and gratitude that our God did not leave us in that place of death and decay. He came and he rescued us. We are promised life and life to the full because of all that God freely offers us. And the liturgy helps bring to our awareness the vast distance that separates us from God. In our sinfulness, it's, it's a chasm. And yet, in that same breath, what we're able to see is the great lengths that God was willing to travel 
to bring us home. Brothers and sisters, in these three portions of the liturgy, we hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed to us each and every week. We affirm through prayer that we are able to be in relationship with God. It's a relationship where he hears our cries and responds when we listen. But we confess that we have done nothing to earn his favor. We are sinful and broken, but that doesn't mean that we are cast out. God loved us so deeply that he sacrificed everything, even his son Jesus, to save us. As the comfortable words tell us in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, this is our story, our hope, our promise if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know where you are today. Maybe for you, the good news of the gospel is more like old news. You know what? I've heard it, done there, been there, eh, whatever. And you just kind of shrug your shoulders. I got it. Perhaps you find yourself in a place right now where you're struggling to believe that God hears your prayers or that he's actually going to answer you if you cry out to him. You could be stuck in some sinful behavior that you deep down believe that God can't or won't forgive. My prayer this morning is that each one of us, wherever it is that we are, we hear the good news of the gospel message and it washes over us like cool cleansing water that our hearts would be refreshed by this glorious truth and that our souls would respond in genuine worship, gratitude, and repentance because of God's promise to each one of us. But we aren't finished yet. While we've talked about the shape of the three pieces of the liturgy and how they can shape us, there's one more thing that I want to mention that's really important. And to do so, I'm going to have to let you in on a little secret. Up to this point in our church service, you are able, if you are so inclined, to experience all of it from the comfort and convenience of your own home. You can sing songs of praise anywhere. You can read the scriptures any time of the day. And thanks to the internet, you can access countless sermons from pastors that are far, far more skilled and capable than anyone who will, you will ever hear from this pulpit. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> you can read the prayers from the Book of Common Prayer, and you can actually walk yourself through the prayers of the people, the confession, and the assurance of pardon all by yourself. So why is it necessary to show up at this building to be with these people week after week to do these things together? Well, in order to answer that question, I'm going to have to let you in on another secret. 
but one that, you know what, it's pretty common. It doesn't get spoken of. And it's this. Church, there is going to come times in your life when the darkness is so debilitating, when the hurt is so overwhelming, when the, the loss is so great that you, in your own strength, you cannot and you will not turn your eyes to the Lord. And it's in those moments that you need the community of believers around you to see you through. And it's not just to provide you with a couple of casseroles, although meals are great, don't get me wrong. You will need the church to come alongside you, to pray for you, to comfort you, to hold you up when the weight of your struggle is too heavy to bear. And you're going to need the people in this room to proclaim with confidence when you have none, that God sees you, that God hasn't forgotten you, and that you know what? The truth of the gospel message still applies to you, even in the midst of your hurt. Now, I have an example of this that I'd like to share. Just a few weeks ago, I had come back to church after having been gone for, I think, a month um, because I was sick and I had suffered from a concussion. So I hadn't been in this building for at least four weeks. And honestly, it had, it had been a tough time. But I was grateful to be back here with people that I knew and loved. And so as I walked up that day to receive communion, Lanny Aronson handed me my cup, he looked me in the eye, and this is all he said. God loves you so much. And he gave me my wine, and I walked away. But the tenderness in his voice and the sincerity of his words made that truth that God loves me, it moved my heart in a way and touched my soul in a way that would never have happened had I stayed at home and done church by myself. The Christian life was never intended to be lived out in isolation. It has always been done within community. And when we come to this place, we declare that there is a we, us, and our that is far greater than a me, I, and my. And that you know what? In our journey, we are not alone. I think this principle was illustrated brilliantly at the end of season one of Ted Lasso. Okay. So apparently you all know Ted Lasso. Now the context of the scene is very simple. Ted is the coach of an English soccer team, and they were playing in their final match, and uh, they needed to win in order to avoid being relegated to a lower league. Spoiler alert, hate to do this to you, but they lost. And the team is devastated. And so Ted enters the locker room, and this is what he says. And I just want to prepare you. I'm going to get into character. There's going to be a little twang happening here. So just run with it, okay? It's, it's going to land much better. 
Ted says this. Now look, this is a sad moment here for all of us. There ain't nothing I can say standing in front of you right now that can take that away. But please, do me this favor. Lift up your heads and look up around this locker room. Look at everybody else in here. And I want you to be grateful that you're going through this sad moment with all these other folks. Because I promise you, there is something far worse out there than being sad, and that's being alone and being sad. Ain't nobody in this room alone. Church, there will be plenty of sad times in our lives. It's inevitable. But because of this community, we don't ever have to be and walk through those sad times alone. Now, lest you think the church is something like a crutch that you can just turn to and lean on in difficult times, that the church is just here to serve you only when you are in need, I have news for you. There is a symbiotic relationship between all of us. Because think about it, if we only came through those doors in times of need and desperation, we would be surrounded by people in the exact same situation. But as one body that is present week after week, in our tough times, we get to lean on others that are actually in a place of strength and confidence and joy in their spiritual journey. And in those moments, when we are the ones that are thriving and maturing in our faith, we get to be the firm foundation around, for others around us that are faltering. We get to be the ones that affirm to our brothers and sisters that there is still reason for hope, even in the midst of hard times. So in the good and the bad, we show up and we participate in the liturgical service in this community to both minister and to be ministered to. That is one of the significant benefits of doing the liturgy together. As Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, when we come here together and we submit ourselves to God's work through the prayers of the people, the confession, and the assurance of pardon, We are reminded each week that we have a relationship with God, one in which he turns his face towards us, he hears our requests, and answers to us in response. In our sinfulness, we don't deserve that relationship, but because of who God is, it is freely lavished upon us with grace and love. And as believers, it is important that we gather together as one body week in and week out to proclaim the glorious truth of the gospel reality to each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that the gospel message is still true today. No matter if we have been walking with you for months or several years, God, no matter how long we've been on this journey, the truth of it is still just remarkable that we were dead in our sins and yet in your lavish love for us you made a way for us to be in relationship with you through the holy spirit i ask that the reality of this truth would sink deep into each of the hearts present here today and that it would stir the embers of our emotions of gratitude and worship towards you for your goodness and love and mercy towards us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.